and this comes back to kind of the question again of who is involved in decision making you know like if you're hearing the voices of the communities that are going to be affected by these policies um and if you know how they're going to affect these communities then um it makes it a lot harder um to uh have these kinds of ill effects or like phrase another way like it's it's a lot easier to actually get it right and to make climate policy that works for both um communities who are really at the front lines Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Declarations. Today, we're going to talk about existential risk, climate change, and human rights with the wonderful Natalie Jones. From the University of Cambridge and the Center of Governance and Human Rights, my name is Muna Gassim, and I am your host. This is Declarations. I also have today with me in the Zoom studio, Eddie, who's a panelist who will help lead this discussion. Natalie Jones is a researcher, writer, organizer, and lawyer working on indigenous rights, climate policy, and the emerging field of existential risk. She's currently a research associate at the Center for the Study of Existential Risk at the University of Cambridge. Natalie, thank you so much for joining us today. It's an absolute honor to have you on our podcast. Um, Well, it's really great to be here. So uh, thanks a lot for having me. Great. Yeah. It's a, so it's super exciting. I'm really, I'm interested in sort of learning more about what existential risk is. Um, I know a lot of our listeners are probably curious about just hearing what that is. So I was wondering if you could sort of outline firstly what the CSER is and what your role is, and then, you know, just briefly kind of give us an overview of what existential risk is. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I think existential risk and kind of this kind of language of existential risk is something we're hearing more and more of, you know, like in the public, um, particularly with the rise of COVID and the climate crisis, we're kind of hearing about um, existential threats kind of all over the place. Um, but the, um, the center where I work, um, this center for the study of existential risks, um, it's basically a, an interdisciplinary research institute that studies these um, existential risks um, and tries to understand um, how they are caused, um, how to stop them, um, how they work, basically everything about these risks to kind of give um, us the best chance of doing something about them. And I guess. Um, when we're talking about an existential risk, we're meaning things that are global in nature and potentially affect everybody. And I know um, on this podcast, you know, you talk all the time about, you know, human rights violations and um, and risks that affect groups of people and countries and nations, which are all really important. Um, we're interested in existential risks to... I guess, the world as a whole, um, if we can take that perspective. And at the centre, there are a range of researchers coming from all different disciplinary backgrounds. I'm a lawyer by training. Um, I know you are as well, Muna. Um, student, yeah. <laughs> Last student. <laughs> you will yeah. be a lawyer, which I think is really great and um, exciting. And um, yeah, um, and at 
at the center, we have people in areas from anthropology to engineering to maths to political science um, and a lot more that I can't currently remember. Um, and everyone's working on um, these, applying their areas of knowledge to these existential challenges. And obviously um, at the center, we do a lot of work on climate change, um, the climate crisis as one of uh, the main existential risks, which I believe the world faces. Um, and I'm obviously not alone in that view. That's a very um, standard view. Um, other areas that we do a lot of work on are biosecurity and bio risks, um, particularly risks from like emerging technologies in relation to um, uh, um, for example, synthetic biology, that kind of thing. So like um, engineered viruses as well as natural pandemics and that kind of thing. Um, and then there are risks from artificial intelligence of all, all kinds. Um, and yeah, so it's, it's a broad landscape of risks and threats. <clears throat> and the idea is that by having a center uh, where you have um, scholars and researchers from all kinds of areas working on all these risks, you can start to kind of study and understand them in a more holistic and um, systematic way, I guess. Um, and that's then, I guess, a, a core part of the mission of, of um, um, Caesar, um, as we call it. Um, and yeah, I guess um, the, the other aspect I wanted just to kind of touch on in this introduction is like, um, it's an expanding research field and there's a lot of space for it to, I think particularly in light of the topic of this podcast, human rights, um, there's a lot of intersections I think between existential risks and human rights um, and a lot of ways in which um, human rights discourses and discussions can be brought to bear on the problem of tackling existential risk. And I think that's um, so far an under addressed area, but not through any, um, yeah, um, I guess the field is growing and expanding all the time. And I think connections with human rights are definitely um, an aspect that, sh that, that can be on the agenda a lot more, which I'm really excited about. Um, you mentioned climate change and you mentioned human rights being an underexplored area. And throughout this podcast, we've seen, we've explored the intersection of climate change with human rights issues, so racial injustice, uh, you know, a lack of access. Um, and I kind of want to talk to you about that interplay. So climate change, human rights, and how this all fits into the, to the larger field of existential risk in your study, in your work. So, I mean... I don't know how much of a general introduction to give. I'm sure your listeners are all extremely informed about like climate change and human rights and the ways in which it kind of impacts on, on 
people. Um, it's obvious, you know, climate impacts on all the rights we hold dear, right to life, right to um, private life and health and food and water, um, and so on and so forth. I think um, one of the ways I'm trying to address this in my work, um, which I'm working on right at the moment, is a key aspect of my work is who is involved in the conversations we're having um, about existential risk, um, including climate change. And, you know, like an important element of human rights is the procedural rights, procedural rights. And um, they often get a lot less attention because I think they're not as um, uh, exciting or maybe attractive as like right to life. Like, you know, everyone can get behind the right to life. Um, just to pick up, yeah. So one of the things I'm thinking a lot about is, is like when governments and particularly international, um, international conversations are being had about how to address these threats, whether that's climate change or any other um, risks of the kind we're concerned about, like who is being heard? Um, and this comes from a particular perspective, obviously, you know, like I'm a um, researcher at a top UK university. I'm white. I'm from, um, I guess, like a settler colonial country and just wanting to think a bit more about um, who was involved in the conversations that we're having, I guess, both here in Cambridge, um, but also when governments are making decisions about um, how to address the climate crisis, whose voices are hearing. And one of the ways we can do this is by like having a think about human rights, um, particularly participation rights and a bunch of the work well yeah basically all of the work I did in my PhD was uh, specifically about um, participatory rights of indigenous peoples um, and 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 how they are um, how they are already um, participating in a lot of these intergovernmental conversations um, but but also making a case for a a kind of a human right in international law, a right of indigenous peoples, um, a collective right to participate. Um, and that's one particular element of it. And I think this this um this is potentially quite a broad area of work, right? Like there's a lot of um work that can be done on, yeah, like who who, who is being heard in these conversations and how and under what conditions and does participation translate into influence or power over outcomes um and if not you know how can it do so it's it's a really interesting point you raise about your your phd and talking about international governance because what that's involving is how do we replicate indigenous voices on a larger scale globally how do we take national bodies in geographical space and represent them at a larger scale and I think a lot of what extinction um, risk studies is is concerned with is taking the present population and extending it across not the scale of ge of geography or space, but of time, and ensuring that the indig indigenous population of the present have their say in the future as well, and kind of balancing those 
voices against each other. So I think that's a really interesting comparison between those two fields of study. Yeah, I think that's super, it's a super interesting point you raise. Yeah, so like in in the kind of existential risk community, there is a lot of um, focus on, yeah, like I guess uh, current people um, versus kind of future generations and, you know, um, for kind of context, a few years ago, I was involved with um, the establishment of the all-party parliamentary group on future generations, which is kind of a, a forum um, that brings together parliamentarians to, I guess, draw attention to and like just raise issues relating to um, future generations. Because politics, you know, really takes a short-term perspective a lot of the time, and it's so important to like broaden these time horizons. And my um, other colleague. Um, Hayden, Hayden Belfield, who talks a lot about um, how, like, his idea is like, um, people who are currently alive are in some sense colonizing the future. I'd, it's clear that we can't um, regard these things as like exact analogs. It's, it's very, the kind of colonial relationship that existed and still um, exists and we have the ongoing effects of around the world is very, very different to what he's talking about. But um, future generations are in some sense the ultimate sort of unheard constituency. Um, and current people alive today have a large influence over the course of the future. Um, and this is not just um, people who are about to be born or who are kids now or who will be alive in the coming years it's about you know who will be born in 2100 and 2200 um that said i think it's um these questions about how we balance like the present day people with future people is is really really tricky and important and there are a lot of debates around it you know and i think that's a, a really really important point you bring up because here on our podcast we look at a lot of very short-term threatening issues that are affecting the lived experiences of people on the ground. Um, and we've had this issue being raised before about you know, climate change. It's, it's a pressing issue, of course, it's urgent. We need to take action. But how do you get people to sort of understand the, the implications of climate change when you, know, you have people who don't have food, don't have access to water, things like that? Um, and I think you know, that's something I want to ask you. What do you think how do you think we can do that? And what do you think the conversation needs to be about? Yeah, it's, a, it's such a good question. Um, I have a lot of thoughts about this. I guess we have to come at this with the recognition from kind of a starting point that, you know, all, all the impacts of the climate crisis, which are happening and which will happen, will make all these problems worse. So it's making um, uh, access to food harder. It's making access to water harder. It's, it's causing um, slides back down into poverty. It's causing um, the devastation from extreme weather events like hurricanes and that kind of thing is, 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 is exacerbating the issues that we already have with poverty, that we already have um, with human rights violations as well. 
So, and that's not to say that there's not a, an extremely real um, problem with um, particular kinds of climate policies which have been proposed, right? Which is where you um, are promoting climate action, but you don't pay attention to how these policies are gonna disproportionately affect particular groups. And of course, this is what we saw in France with the um, uh, fuel taxes there and the great amounts of pushback, you know. Um, and this comes back to kind of the question again of who is involved in decision-making, you know, like if you're hearing the voices of the communities that are gonna be affected by these policies, um, and if you know how they're going to affect these communities, then um, it makes it a lot harder um, to uh, have these kinds of ill effects. Or like, phrase another way, like it's, it's a lot easier to actually get it right and to make climate policy that works for both um, communities who are really at the front lines um, and those and, and um, reducing emissions and you know promoting climate action overall I guess um, a sort of example here is the um, policies which have been called like the Green New Deal type of policies which are really aimed at combating inequality um, at the same time as combating the climate crisis it's about conceptualizing these two things as sort of both as crises um, and tackling them both. And, you know, I'm not an economist, but um, I'm sure, you know, there's a lot of literature out there that indicates that it can be done, that it's not, you know, um, human rights or the environment. It's not like, you know, prosperity or the environment. It's it's really both at the same time. But in terms of how people can be convinced of that, I mean, it's partly about just, um, it's partly that we already have a lot of evidence, but it's also partly um, who is the messenger and who has a voice. Because it's very easy if you are a privileged person, if you're, you know, like if you're, in a university like Cambridge, and you say, oh, you know, well, won't um, climate action just, you know, hit the poorer people and all of that? Um, and if there's nobody around um, who might have the lived experience or might have the academic experience that says, well, actually, um, actually, there are ways that we can address both, or there are ways that, you know, human rights are being so impacted by climate change right now um, that it's, yeah, this is why I, I, um, I think there's such a, a urgent and important need for even more like diversifying the spaces which we are in at the moment. Um, that's a bit rambly, sorry. I hope something useful came across in that. No, that, that, that was really useful. I think one of the really interesting tensions you're speaking to is this human bias towards the present and I think that's that's profound in climate change I think that's probably a 
problem that you're encountering an existential risk more broadly when you're thinking about these future issues, because it seems that there's quite a deep inbuilt psychological bias towards the present. And I'm interested whether you, obviously the, the climate change narrative and, and facing climate change depends on overcoming that to some extent. It depends on taking action that may not look um, may not be optimum in the present, but gives a better result overall. And you gave two slightly different paths there, or alluded to them, one being a way in which we overcome that bias towards the present through making progress, telling better stories, having better messengers, or another path where we look for a win-win scenario. We look for the optimum solutions in the present, which also give the optimum results in the future. And I'd be really interested to hear what you think about climate change, whether which path you think is more popular, possibly more has more potential, um, and where where you think we are on that. If that was clear, yeah, interesting. I I want to pick up on a couple of the points you brought up. Um, so there's different, yeah. There's definitely like a lot of work that shows this, yeah, exactly what you were talking about, like a a kind of a human tendency to disregard the future to a large extent. Um, and it's just not just an individual human thing. Um, I should actually just caveat that as well. Like, um, it, it is a cultural thing to some degree. I don't, um, it's likely that it's not a kind of intrinsic in all cultures to exactly the same extent. Um, so I guess I'm confining this in analysis kind of specifically, particularly just in the context I know, like the kind of Anglo sphere. Um, but yeah, um, it it is a individual, uh, I guess a bias for sure, but there's also a way in which it's, it's uh, locked into economics. Um, for instance, um, so the um a lot of economists have been talking about the discount rates which is basically the kind of rate at which um you um it's basically the rate at which economists um particularly making policy will um discount the future so it's like if you have um an asset that's worth $100 right now, um, over time, um, you, that, um, you predict that that asset will depreciate over time by a certain percentage each year. And so you can say, oh, I have a house that's worth $100 now, um, and that house, in 10 years time will only be worth $88. And so I can make a decision that's um, based on the costs and benefits. The problem with that is that um, if you look at time horizons past, you know, 20 years or so, or like even less than that, even only a few years, you get these huge potential harms, which are, discounted right down. Um, and um, readers might be interested in the Das Gupta review that was recently released by um, 
Harper does Gupta, um, it was a report uh, commissioned by the Treasury, the UK Treasury on the economics of biodiversity. And he's done a lot of work on this question of discounting that, and it's a very excellent ch um, chapter in that. So it's not just the human thing, it's that, that like all that economic arrangements are oriented towards kind of short-term considerations, which implies that um, kind of irregardless of, of kind of changes we can make as individuals, it means there's a much larger collective task to be kind of done getting over that. And that, yeah, with the two different pathways you asked about, I guess I would actually be really unhelpful and, and kind of add more. Um, and also I think that it's not either or the other, it's sort of that like a lot of different things have to happen from different angles. And the good news is that a lot of these things are happening um, because there's a big ecosystem with lots of different groups and actors who are trying different strategies and tactics and that's completely necessary. Um, but um, if you're facing you know, large scale economic uh, structural barriers, to taking the long term seriously, it means you need, you know, to change those economic factors. And that is a big task that involves, in my opinion, movements. So it involves large amounts of people um, because ultimately politicians have to change these rules and the way they um, change them is by, um, is partly by being persuaded, you know, um, but also partly by just having a large amount of people who are saying, look, <laughs> you know, like I'm going to vote for the other guy if, if this kind of thing doesn't change. Um, and to just yell, I guess the discount rules are only kind of one example. Um, I think there are many kinds of examples um, we could talk about whether that's... Um, the nature of debt, um, how banking works in the economy, um, how finance works in the economy, just like lots of different things. Um, you don't have time to get into all that stuff. But um, yeah, I hope that answers your question a little bit, at least. Yeah, I, I, that, that was really interesting. It's really interesting when you talked at the start about just how multidisciplinary existential risk studies is. And it's interesting to hear about the relationship between the politics and the economics as well, and leading that and thinking about the cultural change. Um, you're, you're absolutely right. And I think it testifies to the importance of what you were saying earlier about the way that we bring in our white Western kind of assumptions into these, because there are cultures, different cultures with these kind of seven generation ideas that I've heard about that aren't, aren't Westernized in quite the same way. Um, and that's, that's really interesting in the context of what we were talking about before on the relationship between space and time in existential risk. I think one of the things Declarations is trying to do, um, and potentially the Caesar as well, is create a sense of a global community, kind of that, that collective agency across space. And yeah, like the idea that we're all living in a global village and we can collaborate on the scale needed, the geographical scale needed to kind of some of these problems um, but also the cultural change that's needed across time as well to start thinking with the right 
sense of time that will solve the problems as well. So working along those axes, creating the cultural change that will solve some of these problems um, is a really interesting problem that we're going to have to think about over the next couple of decades. Yeah, cultural change absolutely is a is a big one. And alongside economic change, alongside political change, because obviously all of those things are interconnected. It's not like you have politics and the economy like as like disconnected things, right? Um, but yeah, absolutely. And another um, another aspect just to briefly point to is is like um, you mentioned this seven generations thing, and this also just comes back to the sort of role of indigenous peoples in all of this um, and the kind of urgent need for um, people, I guess, like me um, and people um, in, in kind of lofty research institutions as well as decision-making entities to sort of urgently take on board um, these, these uh, different worldviews and kind of epistemologies and cosmologies which take really, which take the future deeply into account. Um, and this is not to kind of instrumentalize it and say, oh, um, you know, we only care about indigenous peoples because they, they can help save the world. It's, it's like, no, we deeply recognize the need for and importance of indigenous rights kind of as an intrinsic thing. Um, and also recognizing that, I guess, um, there will be and, and is an, an urgent need for, I guess, us and um, us and sort of existential risk research to reach out and and be more open to caring about these other things. Nasu, you mentioned indigenous rights, you mentioned economics. One thing I'm particularly interested in is the interplay of capitalism with indigenous rights. And we've seen a lot of these issues arising here in Canada with you know, pipelines um, on indigenous land, indigenous protesters and activists speaking up about it. But really, I haven't seen enough of you know, the global community speaking up for you know, the, the abuse of indigenous land um, and you know, that being you know, an abuse of their rights, their right to their own land, their right to use the land, um, their connection to their land. And I've seen you know, as favoring government policies in favor of capitalism because it's the nature of the world in which we live in. And I kind of want to talk about what your particular research and sort of that area of indigenous rights and interplay with capitalism. And if you're finding out what, what, what information have you found out sort of about that, what's happening? Do you think enough is being done um, in terms of indigenous rights and speaking up for indigenous peoples? Mm, so I have to say, I completely agree with you. Like not enough is being done um, in general. I mean, I don't wanna, um, a lot of people are speaking up. I, I will give some credit, um, and I think um, the global community as it is, is sort of slowly um, waking up to kind of indigenous people's rights. I think a lot of progress has been made, especially after um, the kind of 
adoption of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Like, I think that really, um, and like all the important work that's been done around that, I think um, has really uh, raised the agenda of Indigenous rights. Um, but you're completely right that like, in the wake of pipeline protests, in the wake of kind of land occupations, um, I'm from New Zealand, um, and um, in the last couple of years, um, there's been, yeah, well, actually, um, for quite a number of years, there's been a land um, dispute over um, lands at, at, at um, over lands at Ahumata, and there's been kind of a long-running dispute between the government and the people of that particular um, area of land. And, you know, I have been heartened by how in New Zealand um, there is more and more public awareness and attention on these issues. But I think globally there's a lot of work to be done. One of the things I found in my research actually was um, that, so when kind of um, I was um, studying how international organizations, how a lot of different international organizations and sort of um, states as well um, are, are making space um, for indigenous peoples in their work in various ways. Um, and that's happening across a really wide range of um, international organizations and agreements on, you know, all kinds of environmental matters, cultural heritage, um, climate change and biodiversity and all the rest of it. Um, where that's particularly lacking and where it's conspicuously lacking is in the areas like um, investment and trade. And there's no um, provisions for like indigenous people's involvement in like making um, investment agreements between like states um, whereby a foreign investor can come in and, you know, invest in a pipeline and that kind of thing. Like, like, and that's exactly the kind of area that touches most on land rights in a way. Um, so it's, it's just interesting to kind of realize where indigenous peoples are being included, which is really good, but like, um, these kind of really important exclusions are, in a sense, the ones which have the most impact on their land rights, and they are still being excluded from these areas. So I think that's um, that's really important to realise. I mean, so so what are the strategies for countering Indigenous exclusion? Yeah, um, good question. I mean, so I want to draw attention to, like, just, like, the really... Um, kind of burgeoning and groundbreaking global indigenous peoples movements that have kind of been ongoing for, you know, a few decades now. And they have really been making huge strides in, in raising these issues and sticking up um, for themselves and accessing these um, spaces and really pushing the doors open when they weren't open at all. Um, so just that needs to be acknowledged. Um, as people who are not Indigenous people, um, who who um, are maybe 
running governments, running international organizations, running other, you know, organizations um, who are having kind of important um, effects on indigenous lands. It's about, you know, recognizing that um, these are, you know, indigenous land rights, it's a matter that, you know, recognizing indigenous land rights ultimately helps everybody. Um, and I'm working on some work at the moment that is, is kind of exploring the um, importance or like arguments for, yeah, it's exploring the arguments for um, taking indigenous land rights uh, really seriously as a matter of combating existential risk. Um, and yeah, it's like about, yeah, recognizing that protecting indigenous land rights is ultimately gonna help everybody. Um, that's, that's really interesting in light of what we were saying earlier about working against the bias, working to overcome the kind of natural human biases and then, or not natural, but in some cases, tendencies that may be economically or ingrained in, in the capitalist structures um, and also working with them and working for those kind of mutual gain, win-win scenarios. So in what way would you be able to give an example of how protecting indigenous land has become one of those kind of win-win scenarios? Yeah, I should be clear here. Um, personally, I don't necessarily think that um, protecting indigenous lands is fully compatible with capitalism. And I don't think those two are necessarily or, 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 or even, um, you know, even um, naturally in sync. Um, it's more about that protecting indigenous lands is, is um, really important for uh, the whole planet and the biosphere, um, which our economy is located kind of in, you know? Um, so thinking of the economy as, as, as kind of dependent on this um, entirely, yeah, linked to and dependent on this, this wider context of the biosphere. Um, and thinking about, you know, <clears throat> what do we actually need to live um, and, and perpetuate a human society? I think that's a great point um, you've made just because I've been finding it difficult to sort of reconcile capitalism with protecting indigenous land rights. Um, and I guess it, you're right. It is a, it's, a, it's, a very, it's a very difficult thing to reconcile, obviously, because we have one system built on exploitation and using resources for profit and another one that needs to protect it. Um, but I guess my question is, you know, we do live in a capitalist world. Um, and we have a lot of our listeners listening to this and thinking, you know, how can I get involved? How can I learn more about existential risk? How can I be a better ally for Indigenous people all across the world? Um, and I'd like to ask you, what advice would you give our listeners? What advice do you have for, for us sitting here? How do we, how do we become better allies? Mm, great question. Yeah. So on the existential risk thing, yeah, it's, it's totally a, a 
area that I would encourage learning a lot more about. Um, the good news is that um, there is really a burgeoning academic field and, and there, um, there have recently been released a number of really good books. Um, I would particularly recommend for people just wanting a, a good um, introduction and sort of an overview of kind of the state of play. Um, there's a book called The Precipice by Toby Ord. Really um, would recommend checking that one out. Um, but um, there's a, you know, there's a wide range and kind of ever increasing um, volume of writings about existential risk, which, um, yeah, listeners um, absolutely should dive into. And I know that also um, um, there's a centre here in Cambridge, and then there are also a number of other um, research institutions looking at existential risks, such as the Future of Humanity Institute in Oxford, um, and the Future of Life Institute um, in Boston, and all of these institutes run, you know, lectures and public events of various kinds. So that's something I'd recommend checking out for sure. Um, and on the Indigenous um, rights question, I mean, yeah, I guess for people who live in, in, um, Um, for people who live in and on indigenous lands and, you know, in countries um, like that have colonial relationships to indigenous peoples, I mean, I'd really recommend starting locally and um, if you haven't, learning more about the histories um, of kind of the land you're living on um, and the events that went on there. Um, because, yeah, all of these things have a very real history. And, and I think we often, um, or at least I often, um, when, you know, thinking about Indigenous rights from kind of a more kind of legal academic perspective, it, it, it gets easy to, to sort of get tangled up in the law and forget that there's really real history underneath it, um, just speaking for me. So one thing I would say is, yeah, learning about, where you live and where you are. If you're not in one of those areas, if you're maybe in the UK, for instance, um, or elsewhere in Europe, I mean, reading more global history um, and maybe like the histories of your countries, um, which might not have been taught in schools, for instance. And I mean, I, ca I, ca I have a number of really good books in mind, which I can... Um, email and you can put, you know, like in the show notes or something if that is what you do. Um, but um, yeah, I think that's a good starting point. There are like many, like many other things that people can do. Um, I guess the other thing that I would say, which is important is, you know, just keeping an eye out for times when Indigenous peoples um, movements are kind of sparking off, whether that's around pipeline fights or, you know, um, regardless of what the issue is, um, learning more about those issues as they are occurring and learning what Indigenous peoples are asking for and then, you know, like helping them achieve that in the moment. And that looks different in all different cases. So, um, but like when, 
when um uh um when a particular what am I trying to say? Yeah, like when um a big indigenous protest arises, for instance, yeah, like working out how to support that in that moment. Certainly one of one of the things that I've found really useful and learned in this podcast is, you know, on on top of the staggering moral urgency to think about indigenous rights and the issues of the far future, it can be really interesting and useful. Someone who did not know that much about it, um, just raising the scope of, of your thinking in general and thinking more about things on an international community scale, as you were saying earlier, on the scale of the biosphere, but also thinking several generations before can just be a really insightful and enlightening attitude to take to issues, current affairs in general, and certainly the issues that we'll be looking at declarations at in declarations over the next couple of months. So heartily recommend it. I think that's a very positive note to end uh, our discussion today. Natalie, before we wrap up, I wanted to ask, is there a main piece of advice? We've spoken about a lot of different things, a lot of different components. This is going to be a hard question, but if our listeners were to sort of forget everything they've heard, what is the one thing you'd like them to keep in mind and take away from this discussion that we've had today? Protecting Indigenous rights will help combat existential risks. I think right. that's the one thing. It's like very, it's like very hard to decide one thing, but I think that's, yeah, I think a key message that I would like to bring across. Great. Thank you so much. Thank- <laughs> um, you heard it here to all our listeners. Protecting Indigenous rights will help. So, um, you know, thank you so much, Natalie. Thank you for joining us today. And thank you for all of the research and the work that you're doing. We look forward to reading about you more in the future and learning more about your work. Thank you so much, Eddie, for all of your great insight and commentary on today's episode. Thank you, everyone, for listening. This was Declarations. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and LinkedIn as well. We'll have all the details of today's episode on our show notes, which you can find on www.declarationspod.com. A big thank you to our sound editor, Max Parnell, as well. Thanks, everyone, from the Center of Governance and Human Rights. My name is Mona Gassim, and this was Declarations.